Hello, and welcome to this week's Political Thinker podcast. My name's Christopher Bremner MacDonald. The podcast you're going to hear today was recorded a month ago. So unfortunately, we didn't talk about last Friday's tremendously terrible terror attack in Christchurch, New Zealand. So I'm going to discuss this a little bit before we start the main podcast tonight. So I dedicate this podcast to the victims, the survivors, and all the mourners of the Christchurch terror attack. It seems in recent times, all over the world, the right wing of politics is on the rise. We've seen it in Europe, we've seen it in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and in Australia. Having a right or a left side of politics is a really important thing. A balance is very good. But what we've seen recently is extremism. We've seen people like President Donald Trump passing, at least trying to pass laws to prevent Muslim people from entering the United States, trying to get funding to build a wall to stop people from Mexico getting into the United States. These practices have a clear racial element to them. And what have they done? They have given rise to people who feel that it is now acceptable to have hate speech. Now it's acceptable for people to go and act out terrible things of hatred. That they've been encouraged to do it by their leaders, by politicians, by people in power in general, by the media. We've seen thousands of media broadcasts talking about racism in a positive way. And when I say that, I don't mean that I personally believe it's positive, but they are selling it as a positive opinion. In this podcast, I try to be as level-headed and non-biased as possible. I'm interested in both sides and all sides of politics. However, I must say that because of this terrible terror act in New Zealand, I need to make a stand and say, no, it's totally unacceptable for anybody, anybody at all, to encourage people to be violent, to take up arms against civilians in any way whatsoever. Majority of people believe the same thing. I heard a story today on the news about a man who lost his wife in the Christchurch attack. And he was asked by the reporter, do you have anything to say to the person who murdered your, your wife? And he said, yes. He said, I love you. He said, you are a human being, so you're my brother and I love you. That's an amazing thing. Absolutely, truly amazing thing for somebody who's just lost his wife to say to somebody who just murdered, just murdered her. But what it has shown is that there is humanity and there is forgiveness. And hopefully this terrible act can have a positive outcome for the world. Hopefully it'll bring people together from both sides of conflict and both sides of terror. And perhaps we can make a better world. Perhaps the 50 people who passed away, who were murdered, did not die in vain because perhaps their deaths can bring peace to the world. Now, the reason why I mention all of this at the beginning of this podcast is purely the fact that this episode, I'm talking with Associate Professor Felix Petrakaev again. 
and we talk about quite a few things in relation to terrorism. However, we recorded this podcast just about a month ago. So when it comes to it, unfortunately, uh, we didn't get the opportunity to discuss what had happened in Christchurch. Instead, the topic is actually Cold War II, or at least the concepts thereof. So, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and leave your reviews on the iTunes podcast, as well as on SoundCloud, and also, don't forget, if you want to contact me, just jump onto Facebook and look up Political Thinker Podcast. Enjoy. Associate Professor Felix Petrakaev, welcome. Very good to be with you. Now, we have an interesting subject to talk about today, which uh, some people might say doesn't really exist, but personally I feel that it does, which is basically the Second Cold War. Yes, indeed. Uh, And it's a very intriguing subject because uh, in the first Cold War I, uh, what we had was a very clear uh, differentiation between two camps. Mm-hmm. And they were driven by ideology. Uh, so there was a communist block, and then there was the capitalist block. Mm-hmm. And very, everything was clear cut. Yes. Uh, you know, when the countries chose their sides, they chose their sides knowingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, the tensions are showing themselves to be uh, multilateral mm-hmm. and without any very clear ideology behind them. Uh, So if you look at the previous uh, combatants, so to speak, uh, in the Cold War, that is Russia and China uh, against the US and its allies, uh, it was very clear that it was actually based on communism versus capitalism. Today, China is no longer bound by uh, communism uh, per se. Uh, Russia has... uh, jettisoned uh, communism as an ideology. So now it's actually realpolitik uh, from two major players in the international system against uh, a whole lot of shifting opponents. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's mainly the US, but Britain's there, Australia's there, and it's new uh, in the new cool war against uh, China. So it's a very, very complex mix, I think. I do agree. Now, one of the things which I find quite interesting is that obviously, as you say, Cold War, uh, number one, uh, very defined lines between the communist side of the world and then the capitalist side of the world. It seems to be that those sides haven't really changed a great deal. I mean, we're still looking at Russia against America. We're still looking at China against America and America's allies, of course. How do you feel that things are different now than they were during the Cold War? Well, it's precisely the um, absence of an ideology. And uh, the Americans are trying very hard to suggest that there's a difference between authoritarianism and uh, free societies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And hence, they are doing their damnedest um, against Maduro uh, uh, in Venezuela uh, and other locations, Iran, for Mm -hmm, example. mm -hmm. So it's really to do with authoritarianism now. But with China and Russia, it it, it is authoritarianism and it isn't. Um, uh, America deals uh, with uh, President Xi Jinping in China in a way that is really quite different to mm-hmm. the way in which American 
leadership actually dealt with uh, Mao Zedong or Deng Xiaoping. Yes. Uh, they were clear opponents, and it was clearly uh, it was clearly visible what they stood for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current generation of leadership. I don't think has that clarity any longer, which makes it a far more dif- difficult and also dangerous uh, equation, I think. Of course. One of the other things which I find interesting is we're seeing, I feel anyway, that the rise of the dictator is coming back. And so looking at uh, Xi Jinping and his term limits, uh, looking at uh, Putin and the fact that although Russia does have term limits for presidencies like the US does, rather than the US saying there's a maximum of two terms of four years for a career, in, in Russia there's a loophole which says that it's a maximum of eight years at a time. So you can do two limits of four years, then you can have a break, and then you can come back again, which is why Putin uh, had a, a swap with, with Medvedev. And um, I'm noticing more and more that, that, that the world is sort of a, allowing dictators to come forward. Whether, I mean, they're elected, they seem to be elected anyway, but they seem to then be seizing power. And I wonder whether that's because Trump is, is there in America as president and whether there's a power vacuum, which, for instance, Obama had a lot of power, so did Bush, so did Clinton, and going so on and so forth. But it seems to be that because of the internal difficulties with the United States at the moment, uh, China especially are taking up, uh, filling up that gap which has been left. Yep, yep. Well, to to a degree, but uh, there there are also the um, independent trajectories of the countries themselves. You're quite right uh, in pointing to Russia and the problems there, um, but. Uh, um, Putin, in effect, has never lost control of leadership there. So no. while Medvedev uh, stepped in as president, it was very clear that once Putin could run again, it would be Putin and Medvedev would go back uh, to his uh, uh, prime ministerial mm. role. Mm. That can go on uh, in in theory forever. Yes, of course it can. Uh, which means that uh, Putin is in place till I think it's... Uh, 2026, mm. at which time you know Medvedev can come back and Putin can step down again and so forth, uh, or Putin can actually um, reach a point where he can actually change the constitution, which is quite possible yes. in the same way that Xi Jinping did. The other thing about Xi Jinping that's interesting is that he has uh, developed a penchant for um, uh, for building a cult of personality. Yes. So he's now yes. beginning to press very hard on um, students, uh, pupils, uh, actually going to Xi Jinping thought, yes. which is a big step away from previ- the last time we had any thought, it was Deng Xiaoping thought, and that was uh, immediately after the Mao period. Yes. Uh, so we thought that we had left that well behind. No, uh, it's come back. Xi Jinping obviously wants to actually make uh, himself into uh, a leader of marble and steel, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's working very hard to achieve it. Whether he is capable of seeing it through is another question. I. I- I do agree with you, and one of the things which scares me actually about Xi Jinping is the fact that the Chinese uh, Communist Party and the Chinese government 
made changed their constitution for Mao to stop him from having power as the head of the military, head of the party and the presidency at the same time. And Xi Jinping is the first person since then to have that, which is immense power. I mean, it's absolutely immense power. Although I did hear, uh, I had a previous interview guest at one stage who said to me that uh, Xi Jinping didn't actually want to have unlimited term limits, which... I don't know, I think if you have ask any leader if they had unlimited term limits, they'd say, yes, please. Uh, but it reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, in, in China, there are shrines to Mao absolutely everywhere, although there's a, a sort of semi-dislike as well, because, because he was deposed, essentially. But it reminds me of a story which was that uh, somebody, I, I think it was somebody in the United States, gave Mao some mangoes, and those mangoes were chopped up, because uh, Mao didn't mm. like mangoes, and they were distributed again uh, uh, throughout the people, essentially. And so the, the heads of the Communist Party got to have a little bit, and then gradually people started collecting little bits of these mangoes, putting them in water, and then millions of people came in contact with this mango water. And it was like touching God. It was... It was it reminds me very much of, of somebody going in uh, to church and, and having the Holy Communion or something like that. You're, you're, you're doing that because you're touching, you're, you're, you're tasting God. That's what it seems to be like. And I know people who've prayed to Mao and now they're praying to Xi Jinping instead. Uh, yeah, it, 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 there's a the, uh, absolutely fascinating um uh, the, I, I guess the one big difference with Xi Jinping, though, uh, is that there is a very, very large group. Uh, it, you know that uh, uh, Xi Jinping's um, machine has uh, made it illegal to talk about Pooh Bear. Yes. Uh, because yes. <laughs> uh, Xi Jinping is Pooh. Yes. Uh, and uh, particularly in Hong Kong, uh, people are not slow to actually uh, talk about him as Pooh. Mm, mm. um, now, with Mao... Never was there any disrespect. Uh, people were opposed to him, um, but they never actually uh, made uh, fun of him, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, made light of him, uh, nor do they do that with uh, Deng Xiaoping, when Deng Xiaoping was very clever. Xi yes. Jinping's got one characteristic which I think is going to cost him dearly, and that is that he he strikes me more and more as being not terribly bright. Uh, he's a person who's learnt it all by rote, mm-hmm. and now he's implementing it. Uh, why do I say not terribly bright? Because he actually introduced a an attack on corruption, uh, which one would have to be pretty well ensconced in power to do, unless one had a very brazen view of what they could do and Mm -hmm. uh, that he didn't realize the ramifications of it. Uh, That's still there to come back to bite him because if the state system doesn't actually react to his commands, and they can by simply taking their foot off the pedal, then uh, Xi Jinping's in, in a bit of strife. Yes, uh, which is not the case with uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, because uh, Vladimir Putin is a person who is very careful to keep everyone on side. Yes, apart from his opponents, of, of course. course, of course. Uh, so um, who, who don't seem to live very long. That's and they, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they either leave or they leave. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So yeah, yeah, uh, and and it's interesting the. Uh, 
the way in which um, things are manipulated. But one has to say, and I don't say that with any disrespect to the American system, but the way in which Trump is uh, uh, maneuvering and also the way that he's manipulating uh, the American political system actually leaves me wondering whether or not there is a brand of authoritarianism too. Oh, I agree. Uh, which actually is potentially even more harmful because mm. America stands as the colossus in terms of armaments and in terms mm. of economy and so forth. So it it's a difficult time. It's a time of great, and as you say, they are uh, authoritarian leaderships. The last time we saw anything like that was uh, in the interwar years and the uh, run down into war again in the mm. Second World War, mm. when you had massive uh, regimes, including FDR. FDR was, uh, in America, was uh, uh, Roosevelt was a hugely popular and powerful politician, but he was able to actually escape the tyranny of two terms as well, mm. and it was only mm. his physical state that prevented him from running for three terms, uh, and perhaps more, because he yes. was so popular. Look, I, I do agree, and uh, you mentioned well, what I call the purges, well, Xi Jinping's purges, where he was getting rid of corruption. Uh, just to bring back to that note, uh, when he did that, that's when I personally thought something's wrong with Xi Jinping, because it was, it's obvious to anybody outside of China that it wasn't getting rid of corruption, it was getting rid of anybody who opposed him. He was yeah. clearing the way for this, and that's... It happens everywhere. There's an authoritarian state, yep. but it's a very scary time, and it's where the world probably should stand up and say, "Well, hang on a second, something's wrong." Uh, but what what I fear is that in the United States, that's going to happen, and essentially, it's it's basically happening now. Trump sacks anybody who he disagrees with or disagrees with him, and uh, goes around the law. So, for instance, you know, he just announced that he's called a national emergency so that he can build his border wall and doesn't have to get Congress to right. okay it. Now, clearly that's not an emergency. There are far more important things going on in the world right now that are a border wall that's ridiculous. But it seems to be that uh, he has done exactly the same thing as, as Putin or Xi Jinping and has gone, well, we can, we can scoot around the law, we can get rid of this this wall in front of us, this block in front of us, and uh, we can get our way purely for political means or for power means. Yep. And that's that's very scary because you sort of think of the, the United States as the, the big boy in the playground who should be setting the example for everybody, and right now they're not. And at least the United States are quite transparent, whereas the country which is coming up more quickly is China, who are certainly not transparent. Yep, yep. And the last thing you want to have is is a world power that is the is the big boy in the playground who is doing things in an un underhanded way, in a way which the rest of the world can't come in and say, well, hang on, you shouldn't be doing that. Yep, yep. Mm. And, and uh, Xi Jinping is using uh, all manner of things rather creatively, or his uh, minions are. For example, the most recent... Uh, announcement is that uh, China would like uh, to see uh, Hong Kong's rule of law and legal system form the basis uh, of the greater region, so the uh, Yellow River mm -hmm. uh, region. Um, what is uh, 
funny about that, uh, rather tragic really, is it's not there to, uh, uh, as a system to emulate, but rather it's a way of taming that system by in absorbing it into a broader region which is Chinese mm. and therefore perhaps emasculating the, that legal system in future. Uh, now that is really quite, um, you know, in terms of lateral thought, that's really quite clever. Uh, but that seems to be what is what is happening. Mm. Uh, if that happens, then Hong Kong falls, and Xi Jinping uh, continues to uh, direct traffic in such a way as to uh, harness and accumulate more and more power and more and more control. Um, and the question is whether he is able uh, to actually articulate that into a vision, a direction uh, in terms of international policy. And uh, I'd like to add to that, that uh, the one thing that's been very disappointing, I thought that Xi Jinping early had been a person who was able to tame and contain Trump. Mm -hmm. But it now seems that uh, all the things that he did, which seemed clever, uh, Trump is able to, and excuse uh, the pun, but he's been able to trump them uh, and so easily in terms of uh, you know tariff uh, tariff levels and mm -hmm, so forth mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, Xi Jinping has not has shown himself to be a fallible individual potentially that's even more dangerous than having an infallible uh, person occupy the position because uh, he will try to guard his uh, position and his status and that's when real troubles uh, and real fireworks will begin mm -hmm. politically in, in China I think. Do you think that uh, the amalgamation of Hong Kong back into mainland China made a, a credible difference to the power of China? Oh absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, if it weren't for Hong Kong uh, China would have taken many, many decades more to have built up uh, the um, entrepreneurial skills, uh, the industrial skills, the financial skills particularly, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that actually Hong Kong has been able to uh, advise China on. So had Hong Kong been separate, had the uh, major tycoons in Hong Kong not been part and parcel of China's resurgence, mm -hmm. uh, it would have been a much, much slower process yes. uh, where the Chinese equivalents would have had to have learned a great deal very quickly. Mm -hmm. But without guidance and without advice, that wouldn't have happened. So no. the major entrepreneurs and the major uh, power brokers, financial power brokers in Hong Kong have had an enormous influence, mm, mm. and an unstated one, a very quiet one, a discreet presence. One of the things I noticed when I was in Beijing a few years ago was the number of cars, which 20 years previous, there weren't any cars in Beijing. Everyone rode bicycles everywhere. And um, I, remember, I remember sitting in 97 and watching, with my parents, watching uh, Prince Charles hand back Hong Kong. And I had this theory back then, which was, I feel the British government should have said to China, we are not going to give it back now. We'll give it back to China when China renounces communism. And I have a feeling, I mean, I know this sounds really crazy, but I have a feeling that because Hong Kong was so valuable to China, that they would actually consider pulling back the Communist Party a little bit purely to get their hands on Hong Kong. Um, but it, I don't know. It wouldn't even have had to have been uh, going that far. 
Uh, once uh, Mag Margaret Thatcher, who was not a great fan of Hong Kong, she uh, described uh, the government of Hong Kong and the uh, Legislative Council as, um, uh, as uh, Hong Kong co uh, County Council. So that's how little respect she had. All that Britain had to do at that time was to provide every resident of Hong Kong with a full British passport, and China would not have been able to manipulate uh, the territory in the way that it has. Mm -hmm. It would have actually vouchsafed every single resident yes. so they could actually speak more confidently. But that's the one thing that Thatcher didn't want, one thing that Britain didn't want, and that cost Britain dearly in terms mm -hmm. of goodwill, but at the same time it actually left uh, Hong Kong out to dry. Yes. Uh, and it was a terrible thing that that, that was done. The, Chin the Chinese of Hong Kong wouldn't have wanted to have gone to Britain because no. it was it's a far more active economy uh, in Hong Kong, but they would have had the option or they would have had the bolt hole if they had to at some point leave in a hurry. Yes, no, uh, I do so that, understand. That, that would have been uh, the ideal uh, solution which Britain had in its own power mm -hmm. to do, um, and it didn't do it. Instead, couched it in, well, the new territories would be handed back to China as part of the 99-year lease, uh, so then it would be only Hong Kong and a Kowloon Peninsula, and of course that's not enough to run a vibrant economy, and that was the reason that was given give the residents, every resident, a, a British passport, a proper, full-blooded one, uh, there wouldn't have been that no. problem. Do you think that, that maybe uh, the reason they didn't do it is because of the British government essentially doing that with Pakistan and uh, giving Pakistani people the ability to move to the United Kingdom with a full passport? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it was a combination, unfortunate combination of two things. One, Thatcher herself, and she had a certain jingoistic attitude. Um, and uh, these were, after all, um, people of the provinces, as I suggested. Um, and, uh, and then the other thing is that there would have been a certain amount of backlash uh, in uh, Britain itself, because they would have remembered the Pakistanis, they would have remembered the West Indians, they would have remembered the Indians, um, and they would have remembered the uh, Indians from Uganda too, uh, and they would have um, actually reacted possibly by suggesting uh, that there was going to be swamping. But that's a public relations exercise yes, which the government could have actually handled and to have said that this economy is worth this much to mm. Britain. Uh, we would easily absorb them and it would create an even more dynamic economy. Yeah, uh, I, So they could have, but they didn't. I, I feel that the, the safety issue for me is the biggest one. And um, after speaking with lots of people who are from Hong Kong, who seem to constantly live in fear of mainland China, mm -hmm. and especially because of the fact, I mean, Britain being in Hong Kong, I mean, it was still quite author authoritarian. The, the Hong Kong people didn't have a, a voice in government or anything like that, as far as I understand. But they were safe and were, were treated under British law, which is pretty safe. It's pretty reasonable for most people. Uh, and the court system was open and was, was, you know, everything was open to the public. Everything was like it is in England, essentially, and in Australia and most other common law countries. But obviously it's not like that in China. And 
One of the things I remember, again, when it was handed back, I remember taking note of the fact that tanks came over. Lots and lots and lots of tanks were brought in to show the Hong Kong people that the Chinese government were there and were there to be powerful. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, PLA. Mm. Um, uh, but but uh, the, uh, I've seen an explanation which actually is quite plausible, and that is that at midnight on June 30th, um, uh, the British uh, set sail uh, on um, uh, into into the sunset, so to speak. It was in the middle of the night, um, but also uh, you know the administration flew off on specially chartered planes. Um, but the interesting thing uh, uh, is that uh, the ones who left were also the uh, armed forces, and it makes sense that there shouldn't be a vacuum. No, symbolically, that there should be. I do agree. And yes. the way in which China did it was actually quite good. They came in, but they immediately went to barracks and were invisible. Yeah. And yeah. to this day, I think that's the case. You can see. Uh, elements of the presence of the PLA, but it's not a very obvious one. There's still, um, so still are people who disappear in Hong Kong quite a bit. Absolutely, and, and absolutely. There are, there are, I mean, we've seen the, the big protests a couple of years ago for democracy and how they were quashed very quickly by mainland Chinese, uh, basically paramilitary coming in and, and stopping them, the military police essentially. And that's a worry because part of the agreement of them handing it back was that Hong Kong would be able to have a democratic government. Yep. But they still haven't got it. No, it's... and Britain left them uh, high and dry on that count yeah. too by yeah. uh, not uh, insisting that the governor's uh, or the chief executive's powers should be curtailed because they're the most powerful set of um, rights and uh, uh, and uh, open, uh, open provisions of uh, complete control uh, for a ruler anywhere, uh, apart from the most uh, most authoritarian of states, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't changed. And Britain has a certain amount to answer for in the sense that they didn't they didn't feel that they needed to change the governor's standing. Uh, but if you look at the letters patent. Um, uh, that were that were the basis for um, the connection between Hong Kong and Britain. Uh, the governor's uh, uh, rights and privileges are huge. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so they still are. Uh, the chief executive's powers are considerable. Um, so that's unlikely to change. And China likes it that way mm-hmm. uh, because all they have to do is exert influence on the chief executive. That's it, and yes. they do. So, do you think that? Uh, in the theory of a second Cold War or a Cool War, do you think that terrorism has a place in that? Do you think that's part of a Cool War? Uh, Yes and no. Um, I think that uh, terrorism continues to be a scourge, but it's a mobile scourge. And it's very difficult to actually isolate it. And where it's been isolated, it's been isolated for political purposes. The Russians with the Chechens, for mm-hmm. example, uh, the Chinese uh, with the Uyghurs uh, in uh, Xinjiang province, uh, north northwestern province. Um, uh, so it's used very often by the powers that be uh, as a way of um, maintaining order and controlling uh, communities and societies. Uh, Yes, of course, there's the transnational terrorism, and it's a major problem, but 
Uh, a lot of these countries actually don't suffer from it. Uh, so it's actually the West mm. that is the most uh, uh, susceptible to it, but also uh, the African continent. And we haven't talked about that, but there, there's a whole... Uh, area of that cool war actually mm -hmm. breaking out there, of which course. is the Chinese influence, uh, monetary and financial influence uh, in terms of the aid. Uh, a lot of the uh, uh, countries there are actually rebelling against that uh, uh, informal control mm. of their mm -hmm. countries, uh, but at the same time they don't have much respect for the former colonial powers. No. So there is a certain open area which is likely to become a major, major um, source of tension and uh, actually conflict uh, in the coming in the coming years, um, more so than uh, in the established countries. I think. Um, and Latin America, to a degree, is also a bit of a problem because uh, the United States insists on putting, it foot, putting its foot down on regimes such as Maduro's, uh, which in turn raises the ghosts, um, revives the ghosts of the uh, period of uh, uh, neo-colonialism that America practiced, mm -hmm. uh, which didn't end until very, very late and arguably never has ended. So yes. uh, there is plenty of scope there for real tensions between various players. And so that's part of, I think, this cool war uh, environment. But none of this actually amounts to uh, the direct hostility and, and tensions, no. uh, standing tensions between the two sides, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which in some ways is necessary uh, in order to sort of bring it to the status of another Cold War. Yes, no, I, I do agree. I do agree. Do you think that the uh, United States moving into uh, Venezuela, do you think they have the right to do that at the moment? Do you think that Maduro is actually, is he a tyrant? Is he doing the wrong thing? Or do you think that, do you think it's time for him to to go? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds about that. Uh, uh, so Maduro was put installed in that position in, mm -hmm. in, in essence by Chavez mm -hmm. because Chavez was dying he wanted to see his uh, legacy um, actually uh, perpetuated uh, Maduro was the one who was there as vice president and he was uh, elevated to president he's nowhere near as clever as Chavez was no. um, and you know, no disrespect to bus drivers, but that was his former occupation. So not much experience in running a state. Uh, I don't know whether it's Maduro himself, who's a little bit of a uh, um, sort of storer of uh, money for his own family, mm -hmm. or whether it's the people around him who are taking advantage. So that side of it, uh, you know, I can see why Maduro should go. But he shouldn't go at the behest of uh, a an external power. No, uh, no, because I he do was agree. elected properly. Yes, the opposition was stupid enough to say, "Oh, we're not going to contest this." So he walked in to the position. Now, uh, the uh, the opposition has a lot to answer for mm, in, in mm. having done that. And at the time, people were saying, "Well, you know, this is silly. Uh, you just allow him straight in, and then he can claim legitimacy." Uh, and he did, and he has, yes. and he's got it. So every time America, Trump, sort of signaling that uh, that the army should overthrow Maduro, uh, basically what he's saying is obey uh, our primacy, I, I which feel, is not good. Which is not good. No, I agree. I feel that uh, Trump wouldn't be saying that 
if it was a right-wing government rather than being a socialist government that, that was in power in Venezuela. And, uh, I mean, you look at Pinochet, the whole world, politicians all over the world loved Pinochet because of the fact that he was right-wing. He murdered hundreds of thousands of people yep. and wasn't a good person, but he died of old age and, you know, uh, whereas any time, I mean, there have been, in South America, there have been lots of very stable governments that have lasted a long time that have been toppled by the US because of the fact that they weren't right-wing. And that is very scary, I feel, because uh, just, I mean, they're not communist. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a big difference between socialism and communism. Sure. But I feel that the United States just seems to, it has to have right-wing governments around it, surrounding it for some reason. And I mean, America is a socialist country. It, it, is, it has healthcare, it has the dole, it has um, all sorts of things which you consider to be socialist. Britain is a socialist country. We are a socialist country here in Australia. Uh, most countries really are socialist countries because they look after their people. It's only when you get uh, sort of extremism that suddenly things are not on the social mind. Whereas I mean, what we've seen in Venezuela is you know, the state buying up lots of companies and uh, like the the, uh, the national oil company there was a private company, they bought it back. And that's, you know, the, for me, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's done well. Yep. But it seems to be what's happened there is, is that uh, it had lots of money. Venezuela was very wealthy and then they've misappropriated their wealth, which has caused famine and has caused... All well, to, to a degree, but um, also remembering that, uh, that, that uh, uh, Venezuela is a, uh, a, a mono-form uh, mono, um, of economy, and mm -hmm. the, the mono-form is actually that uh, they depend on oil. There's yes. no other resource, there's no other... Uh, there's plenty there, but there's no other resource that's been worked up to the point where it can actually um, replace oil. Mm -hmm. And oil has in past years fallen dramatically. In addition to that, the United States uh, has actually managed to um, impose, uh, impose some terrible some terrible uh, sanctions mm -hmm, under mm -hmm. Obama, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, the slide of the Venezuelan economy occurred. Yes. So it's not just misappropriation, but it's also those major, major uh, events uh, in bilateral relations. Of course. And remembering, of course, that uh, the United States um, is f holds 40% of Venezuela's uh, export mm -hmm. industry. Uh, oil, in other words. Yes. And Venezuela is actually uh, the one with the greatest, the largest uh, oil reserves in the world today. Mm -hmm. uh, not Saudi Arabia, but uh, Venezuela. So there's plenty to play for in all of this. There is, which, which sort of makes me think, actually, that uh, the United States has sort of helped in the collapse of Venezuela so they can go in and buy the oil at a really cheap price. Well, of course. Yeah. Whereas Saudi Arabia, I mean, we, we saw uh, mid last year, uh, the the Middle Eastern states got together and said, let's put two fingers up to the US and they lowered the price of, of oil right down. So also in Australia here, we were buying petrol for less than a dollar. That's right. And they did that just to show how mighty they are. That's quite a powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah. Quite if they did it all the time. I mean, you know, it'd be 
driving around much, much more cheaply. But uh, yeah, it, it really demonstrates that there might be some ulterior motives to what's happening to Venezuela. And just as a sort of a current footnote, um, uh, the fact that uh, China's blocked uh, the um, export of uh, the equivalent of two months of uh, supply to China of coal. From Australia. Uh, from Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, our prime minister has actually come out and said, uh, nothing, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, but there is two months of export trade. Uh, the head of the Reserve Bank has come out to say, well, this is not a problem. If it grows, though, it is a problem. Uh, It's our chief export industry. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happened? The Australian dollar plummeted this this morning or last night. Uh, And, of course, our oil purchases will have gone up in price. So uh, we we're at the pointy end of the world economy in the way that all the other countries are, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. we've got um, a pointier end, I think, and we should be very very mindful of all of that. Oh, I agree. I feel uh, with the with the advent of of uh, nuclear fusion in the next few years, so that's not nuclear power plants. That's that's fusion energy, cold fusion energy, essentially. Uh, I think we're going to see Australia suddenly have all this coal on the ground and not be able to do anything with it because if China's going to be developing that and Europe's going to be developing that and the United States is going to be developing that, uh, we're not going to have anything to export. That's right. And I think Australia needs to start looking now while we still can at other things, at other things we can actually um, add to our economy and not just uh, rely on fossil fuels because... Well, we, we've been very good at that, and one of our, one of our um, future areas of uh, exploration and and uh, uh, and, uh, e- uh, and actually export is um, uh, lithium. Mm-hmm. We've got large uh, amounts here that can actually be produced and exported. Uh, so that's a an, an opening, um, but that depends on people actually um, going for that. In the meantime, also and really to do with the topic of our conversation uh, today um, is the fact that uh, Australia has to work out its relations with China. It's our biggest export trading partner. Uh, Japan, by comparison, was a piece of cake. Uh, the relationship was a very clear-cut one. Uh, China's eclipsed uh, Japan's. Um, but uh, I don't think that Australia's worked out how to actually deal with um, uh, with uh, with China, except in a binary way, mm-hmm. uh, we've got good relations or we haven't got good relations. That's not really the answer to the way in which to deal with China. It's no. the nuances, of course. And we don't have terribly many nuances, and we just lost uh, a former foreign minister who actually was nuanced, uh, Julie Bishop. Um, mm. And that's mm. a great pity because yes, that's the sort of person that we would want out there. Uh, talking to the Chinese leadership. Yeah, yeah. it's one of the things which uh, um, I think Paul Keating said is that we are part of Asia and we need to embrace that and not be afraid of it because uh, I mean, uh, basically what Australia has that more than anything else, we have space, we have land space with not very many people on it. And if you're from a country like China, which also has lots of space, but has a lot of people, they see Australia as this great big empty space that people can go and stand in and build houses. That's right. You know, and so 
it's important that we're friendly because if if we're friendly we don't go to war we don't get taken over you know and i don't really know i mean i know under under the, the law under treaties and things like that like the anzus treaty the united states is supposed to come to the aid of australia but i don't know if it really would if if china decided to invade australia tomorrow and its full full force came to australia australia wouldn't very well be able to defend itself with what we have as, as an Australian capacity. I don't think New Zealand could possibly come and help because they knew they'd be, they'd be squished as well. And the US might just go, oh, well, that's all right. Well, the ANZUS Treaty is actually an interesting uh, example of where we are, we are in a precarious state because the ANZUS Treaty only insists that we actually uh, talk to America about the situation. There's no obligation on either side no. to actually go into any conflict um, just because we've got that uh, treaty. Of course. So that's a major, uh, it's a major plus in the sense that we don't have to go to war mm -hmm. uh, to support America, but we will. Uh, but we also, the negative is that we also uh, have to be aware that America can say, oh, right, okay, we don't want to no. enter into this one. Uh, you handle it, we'll supply you from the side, but you, you maintain whatever you need to do. Mm. Um, mm. And that, that's, a, that's a, a headache for us. Yes. A headache for us. Of course. Associate Professor Felix Petrokayev, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great, great pleasure, Christopher. Um, much, much appreciated. That was Associate Professor Felix Petrokayev talking all things Cold War II. Join me again in a further two weeks. This time, I'm not sure who the guest will be, but we'll have to wait and see. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you want to comment, please do on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, as well as on Facebook. Just look for Political Thinker Podcast. Until next time, keep thinking politically. Thank you.